A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Alfredo Jar, who addresses social injustice, human suffering, state-sponsored violence, the imbalances in power between the global north and south and how these issues are framed in the international media. Alfredo's responded to some of the most troubling moments in recent human history, from the military coup in his native Chile in 1973 and its aftermath, to the Rwandan genocide in the 1990s, to wars and covert operations waged by Western powers over multiple decades, and the relentless displacement of refugees around the world. He's done so through uncompromising, searing, yet often deeply moving installations in multiple media. Alfredo was born in 1956 in Santiago, Chile, and has been based in New York since the early 1980s. He studied architecture, and he still regards himself as an architect who makes art. He first began making work in Chile under the dictatorship of General Pinochet, one of the most brutal anywhere in the world at that time. But he responded powerfully to that setting. In his work, Public Interventions, Studies on Happiness, begun in 1979, he erected signs and billboards in Chilean public spaces in which he asked are you happy? The project also involved polls and interviews and film forums, an approach that managed to evade the censors and create potentially critical discussion of life under authoritarian rule. When he moved to New York, his political focus continued. In 1984, he began his Press Works series, which continues today and is the subject of an exhibition at Goodman Gallery in London in April 2023. Having come from a country in the global south, he was struck by the bias he found in Western media and began to make works addressing the emphases and omissions he noticed in front page headlines and magazine covers. Often, the pages are simply presented, unadorned, as ready-mades for the audience to assess. Elsewhere, Alfredo might adjust the image or words to draw attention to inaccuracies or biases. Among his best-known early works is Logo for America, a 1987 animation for an electronic billboard in Times Square in New York City, commissioned by the Public Art Fund. The sequence, which was 42 seconds long, drew attention to the conflation of America and the United States. In the animation, the words this is not America were emblazoned over a map of the US. This is not America's flag appeared over the stars and stripes. Consistently, Alfredo's attempted to turn his audience's eyes away from the preoccupations of the West to wider issues and broader perspectives. This was particularly true in his Rwanda project, in which he went to the Central African country to witness and document the 1994 genocide, in defiance of what he called the barbaric indifference of most of the media. From the material he gathered there and in the research that he continued after his visit, he created the Rwanda Project, made over six years. Among the many parts of the project was the poignant installation, The Silence of Nduwayezu, in which he took a photograph of the eyes of a boy in a refugee camp who'd witnessed the brutal killing of his parents and was unable to speak. Alfredo reproduced one million slides of the photograph, marking the one million people killed in the genocide. He presented the slides 
in an unfathomably vast pile on a light box where visitors could view the images up close through magnifiers. Light boxes feature repeatedly in Alfredo's work, sometimes to emphasise imagery through illumination, but also, as in the work Lament of the Images, made for Documenta in Castle in 2002, as a metaphor for our blindness to it. As Alfredo has said, we're bombarded by thousands of images, but they've never before been so controlled by multiple forces. He's expressed concerns that we've lost the ability to see and be moved by them. In one trilogy of works, he's analysed well-known reportage photographs and told the story of their making and how they came to reach us. The Sound of Silence, for instance, focuses on a deeply controversial Pulitzer Prize-winning image by the late photographer Kevin Carter, which you'll hear Alfredo describe in our conversation. That was presented in an architectural space that was typical of Alfredo's work. These constructed environments were used powerfully in his series named the Gramsci Trilogy after the Italian writer, journalist and linguist Antonio Gramsci but focusing on political incarceration in a wider sense. In Let 100 Flowers Bloom, one of the works in the series, he used Chairman Mao's phrase to address the Chinese dictator's detainment and killing of Chinese intellectuals through the metaphor of flowers that were fed with water and light and killed by artificial winds and freezing temperatures. As well as addressing topical and historical geopolitical issues then, Alfredo's work is awash with such metaphors and imagery, and it's this with which I began our conversation. He said that his work is a balance between information and poetry. But is that a difficult tightrope to walk? It's impossible to achieve, definitely. I've tried for 40 years and I still cannot achieve it. The work always ends up falling in the side of information, didacticism, or it falls on the other side of poetry, on the more aesthetic size. So that balance is so difficult to achieve, and I'm convinced that to achieve that, that balance would reach the sublime in an artwork. Because I want to inform you, but I also want to move you. I want to illuminate you. And in order to achieve those things, you need both. If it falls on one side... It's boring. It's a book. It's information. And it doesn't tell you what to do with this information. If it's false on the other side, it's too sweet. It's a decoration. It's just an image. So that balance is so difficult to achieve. And uh, I keep working on it. Right. It seems to me that that finding beauty in some of the most genuinely appalling stories situations that the world has ever seen must be as you say an impossible task but you consistently will try it won't you and this is the intriguing thing that in every circumstance you are trying to find an aesthetic response to some of the most appalling atrocities or political complexities that have ever existed in human history yeah because in the end if i'm looking for that aesthetic side it's because that's where hope is so i cannot lose hope I cannot condemn these realities to invisibility. I have to give them an image. And I do not want to be racist in my visualization of the issue when I'm talking about racism. I don't want to repeat the racism that I'm critiquing. I don't want to repeat the violence that I'm attacking. I don't want to, you know, humiliate the victim once more. But at the same time, you have to show that humiliation in order to explain what's happening. So you have to find that way. 
and perhaps the solution is in the aesthetization part. It's not in the information part. The information has to be clear, focused, precise. This is what the reality is. This is what we're talking about. But then this poetic element is fundamental. If not, I would just write about it. I would speak about it. But, you know, as Jean-Luc Godard said, and this is a statement I've always repeated, is that it might be true that you have to choose between ethics and aesthetics, but it is also true that whichever one you choose, you will always find the other one at the end of the road. So, in a way, it is clear that whichever aesthetic decision I take, it is also, in the end, an ethical one. And also, if I decide to go for the ethical solution, in the end, I have to visualize it formally. I have to make it visible. And that is also an aesthetic decision. And can you say to what extent you deal with your own ethical complexities in the work in the sense that you illuminate your own presence? Because it seems to me that is crucial if you are going to take on the subjects that you do, that you have to, in a sense, illuminate your own background, your own privilege, etc. And to what extent would you say that you foreground those elements in forging your work? I try to do so, but with the utmost respect, because I'm never speaking for anybody else but myself. That is key, and that is the most important objective in the work. I'm never speaking for the Rwandans victims of genocide. I'm speaking for myself, commenting, talking about what I've seen, how outraged I am, how full of rage I am at the treatment by the media regarding the genocide, for example. So it's very important that it is clear that it is my thinking, it's my opinion. I'm not speaking for anybody but for myself. But at the same time, in order to do that, I feel that I have to do my homework. I have to understand. I cannot go in and just express my rage out of nothing. I have to understand. And my motto has always been the same. I will not act in the world before understanding the world. And that for me is key. Context is key. And this understanding is key. And I've always controlled myself in order not to speak before understanding. Because I feel it would be utterly irresponsible to speak without understanding. And, and you've always linked that phrase to your architectural training, haven't you? That in a sense, that's a kind of motto that emerges from architecture into your art making. Absolutely. As you know, for an architect, uh, context is everything. And that's how I have worked as an artist. I've used the methodology of the architect. In fact, I, I never studied art. And in front of every project, I try to understand the context and then I respond. And then to me, the poetry in the work, it seems to me, is often in the form of metaphor. And I wonder if that is the sort of thing which makes it art and not architecture, if you like, that this abundance of metaphor in the work is this thing which shifts its kind of focus, if you like, from structure into something more like poetry. The metaphorical solution is one of the devices I use. It's the one I must use. But I've tried different possibilities and different options. In a way, it is the work and the project itself that dictate uh, the final resolution of the formal solutions that I use in the work. But metaphor comes very much uh, handy in most of the cases. Absolutely. And light is a consistent metaphor. And of course, 
that links directly to the camera, which is such a crucial element of your work. Can you say something about light? Because again, it's an architectural phenomenon. It's a phenomenon of space, but it's also the phenomenon of the lens and the, the eye. So I'd love to explore a little bit more about light in your work. Yes, I discovered light as a tool for the architect. Light is a fundamental element when you design architecture. And then in studying certain architects, particularly uh, Tadao Ando, for example, or others, I discovered that the use of light could go much beyond the pure utility of, you know, light, just to, to, able to, to help us to see. It goes much beyond that. And so that's when I discovered that I'd started using light as a metaphor for so many things. And it changes according to the project. So depending on, on what I'm trying to say, light plays a different role. And of course, along the way, I discovered photography and then the, the conjunction of, of photography and architecture with light became one of my main devices as an artist. And of course, you're surrounded in the exhibition at Goodman Gallery by images that are found. They are photographic images, yes, but they are also photographic images in particular contexts. And I'd like to know more about how you balance the sort of image that you find versus the image that you take, if you like. And do you see those as two distinctive things? Yeah, absolutely. Those found images, they become, in my brain, in my mind, ready-mades when I feel that they are communicating much more than what they seem to communicate. And so by displacing these found images within from the, let's say, press world or the media world into the gallery or museum world or the cultural world, I'm hoping that the audience will see more from these found images. But I have to treat these images with respect and with caution because they have a history. And so it's, it's very important to contextualize them properly so people can, can read them properly. Or at least I try to communicate clearly why I'm using these existing images. In the case of the images that I do, I can divide my practice in, in two moments, before Rwanda and after Rwanda. Before Rwanda, I was using photography. I'm not a photographer. I'm, I'm a terrible photographer, but I was using photography and using images. And I would say that after my experience in Rwanda, my use of images changed radically, became much more precise, much more respectful. And I only use images when I have to. And I create an image only when I have to. Because after Rwanda, I discovered that images are not innocent, that every image we produce contains a conception of the world. And so it is so difficult to create an image and for that image to communicate exactly what you wanted to communicate. And so that difficulty has stopped me. And I've been working within what I call the politics of images, which is beyond photography, just thinking about the meaning of an image. What does it mean to create an image and to put it out in the world? So that's where I am now. I'd like to ask you about the address to your audience, because one of the key factors in your work is this perception of a media environment in which there is a naivety amongst the audience to a degree for that media. We're being fed information that is only a partial reflection of the reality and is often extremely biased. But on the other hand, you're presenting the images quite directly and almost violently to your audience, but saying to them, I trust you. I trust you to see this image for what it actually is. And I think there's a sort of interesting dynamic there between 
the world of images and how the media uses it and then the world of images as you as an artist use it and it seems to me that that's a really interesting dynamic in the work yes uh, thank you this trust is fundamental and i wouldn't do this work if i didn't trust the audience but it is also true that once in a while i feel that i need to help the image to communicate exactly what i feel must be communicated so i intervene i intervene slightly in the most subtle and poetic way. And sometimes it's heavier, depending on on what I'm trying to communicate. I think in the case of the Ukraine media uh, today, I think it's not subtle at all. It reflects my impotence and my rage to to what I've seen the media do around this issue of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But in general, before Ukraine, perhaps, I was much more poetic, much more subtle, just thinking that sometimes just the title of the work would help the audience see what I'm trying to suggest. And in that case, for example, the work here, the the biggest, the largest, the most important work in the exhibition, Searching for African Life, where basically I present uh, 2,128 covers of Life magazine from 1936, when this magazine was born, to 1996, when the, the magazine died. And I do nothing. I just present them all in chronological order, but only in the title, just the title of the work suggests what I'm trying to suggest. Searching for Africa in life. I'm not even saying what they will find. I'm just saying I'm searching for Africa in life. That's all. Inviting you to do the same. And perhaps you'll have an answer. One of the things that emerges through that is that you see the bias not just against Africa, but against all sorts of other parts of the world. And you see very clearly this kind of almost myopic focus on particular agenda or particular western focuses if you like absolutely so in other words yes you're you're channeling the word africa into people's minds but actually so much more emerges from that absolutely and uh, the most recent work in the, the exhibition it's a spread from the economist and uh, i'm not even pointing out what did i find in that spread for the audience to to see why is that spread here and uh, there is a title, there are subtitles, there, there is a text, there are images. And what shocked me in that uh, spread was a, a small line that I think probably half of the audience will miss. But it describes the war in Ukraine as, as defining the authority of the West in the world. And I jumped. I was shocked. So it became so transparent, so visible. This is what we're doing. This is what we're fighting about the West authority in the world. So now we're actually saying it. It's the authority of the West, meaning Europe, the United States and Australia. That's the West. 28% of the world. That's what we're fighting for. And so I just wanted to point out to that. That's all. I'm not saying if I agree, if I disagree, nothing. I just want to point out this is what we're fighting for. This is exactly not what they're saying that we're fighting for. And uh, I was surprised because The Economist is a very intelligent, extremely intelligent paper. I've been reading The Economist for all my life. I disagree with 99% of what they do, but I learned so much from The Economist. It's absolutely brilliant writing, brilliant thinking. But I've never seen them fall into their own trap. So let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? 
It's an interesting question because um, he came from the music world. It was uh, John Cage. I was listening to a lot of music. I was always uh, fascinated by music. I would have been a musician if I had not been an architect, an artist, and, and a filmmaker. And when I discovered John Cage, and particularly his work, uh, 4 minutes, 33 seconds, that blew my mind away. That piece is just uh, a monument in the history of contemporary art, in my view. And uh, that piece is about context. An architect could have created that work. And, and when I discovered that music could do that, and then I discovered that he was also a visual artist, then I thought, ha-ha, this is interesting. This is what I want to do. So I would say John Cage was probably my, my first discovery. It's really fascinating how Cage has almost become incorporated into the art world as a visual artist. I mean, obviously, he worked widely with visual artists. He was an extremely influential figure and had a, a peer group who, like him, were so sort of cross-disciplinary that they were almost total artists. Almost everything they did was a Kunstwerk. But it's a fascinating point about Cage, it seems to me, that so many artists today refer to him and, and that he is so alive with us and in so many different ways. He's, he's an extremely flexible artist for artists to call on and to respond to. Absolutely. And I've, and I've been very lucky and privileged to meet him and um, seen him live so many times. My wife was a dancer with the Merce Cunningham Company, so basically we saw him so many times, and uh, it was just uh, a very special moment. And he was generous, literally, with artists as well, wasn't he? Not only was his work generous, but he was very supportive of artists, younger artists, people that were interested in him. He responded to them. Absolutely. Yeah, fascinating figure. Uh, which historical artist do you turn to the most today? It has to be Duchamp, uh, without any doubt. Uh, I am an artist because I discovered the freedom that Duchamp offered us as artists uh, to be free, to do whatever we want. This invention of the ready-made, I think, is, is fundamental to understand what's happening in today's contemporary art. We are all kids of Duchamp. And of course, John Cage was a kid of Duchamp too, which Absolutely. is a lovely link. Absolutely. Without Duchamp, we wouldn't be doing what we do. But this idea of, of the ready-made, is when I discovered that, I still remember the emotion. This idea that you can take a cup, the one I'm having now in my hands, having tea, and I decide from that moment on, exactly 10 a.m. And, and 52 minutes and 30 seconds, that now this becomes a work of art by Alfredo Jarre. I mean, that blew me away. That blew me away. And I think that uh, Duchamp is always in the background. And of course, in terms of the ready-made, the most powerful manifestation of that in your work, and it's around you, as we've said earlier on now, is these magazine covers, which some, as you say, you manipulate, but very often they are ready-made objects as well as images. Absolutely. In that sense, yes, this, this is a show about ready-mades. No, no doubt about it. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Well, if Duchamp is my grandfather, it's Hans Hake, who is my father. Oh, that's nice. Hans has become a friend, someone I deeply admire, and uh, the way he thinks, the way he creates, his generosity towards younger artists. Uh, I consider him my conceptual father in the world of art, because I never studied art myself, so I, I needed figures like him. So definitely his work, his way of thinking, the way he has conducted his career, the ethics of his works, etc., etc., is just a fundamental model that I follow. And of course, that unflinching ability to use art to shine light on inequality and political structures and so on. I can see why it's such an example, because there's a kind of 
a sort of incredible clarity and almost brutality about that sort of presentation of his work, which is, I imagine it's the same for you, an incredibly difficult thing to achieve when you're dealing with complexity of subjects. Absolutely. And uh, the other one that I would like to mention is Pasolini. Pasolini also is one of my heroes. He's the model of intellectual I want to be, because he's not only a, a filmmaker, but a poet, a writer, a critic, a polemicist, a columnist, someone who was active, always his voice always present in the Italian society and the European society of his time, a fundamental figure, and uh, it's really a model for me also. I'm pleased that you mentioned both Harker and Pasolini because both of them feature in different ways in this wonderful space that you created in a show at the Gallery Le Long in 2021, where you brought together a number of artists from across the world, many of whom are wonderful artists who I admire tremendously myself. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that because you said that the Harker work in that, which is one of those weather boxes, those condensation pieces, was the kind of linchpin of that display. Can you say a bit more about that? Why was it the linchpin? Why was that so crucial? Because context is everything. And so before turning into a political system and social system, Hans was working on natural systems. And this this very simple cube with just a, a few drops of water inside becomes a condensation cubes that respond to the context, that respond to the temperature of the visitors, so the temperature of the space where it is displayed. And it changes continuously. It's a brilliant gesture. It's a brilliant object. It's a central object. So... Basically, I told Hans, if you don't loan me this piece, I'm not going to do the show. That work has to be there in the center of the show. And so it's a fundamental work. It's, for me, it's one of the most important works in the history of contemporary art, together with the 4 minutes 33 seconds from John Cage. And then the photograph of Pasolini was by Letizia Battaglia, who the whole exhibition was actually dedicated to, right? And Letizia is an example of the kind of artist that you have referred to many times. She's a photojournalist, and her courage was extraordinary. So tell us a bit more about Letizia and, and, and her importance to that show. Yes, Letizia was a friend, and she passed away while I was working on the exhibition. So I immediately decided to dedicate the show to her. She was an extremely uh, important photographer in, in Italy in the last 50 years, but she was also very courageous. She fought the patriarchy, and she won. She fought the mafia, and she won. For her, photography was an act of resistance, an act of love. And so I, I admired her deeply. So I, I own a photograph of Letizia, which is a portrait of Pasolini. And so for this exhibition, I asked her to, uh, to send me six copies of that portrait, and we framed them all, because I wanted to have that portrait all over the place in the exhibition, like a mantra, Pasolini, Pasolini, Pasolini. And uh, she happily agreed. Uh, she printed the images, she signed them, and sadly, shortly after that, she passed away. So I had to dedicate the show to her, and, uh, and her presence was felt within the show with uh, Pasolini's photograph. There was another really important work in that show, and I know you've spoken about this work before too, which is Sildo Morelles' work, which is called Insertions into Ideological Circuits, which is, in this case, it was the Coke bottles, but he did it using all sorts of different methods and structures. Sildo, it seems to me, is again another sort of crucial peer of yours in terms of this commitment both to aesthetics and to politics. Absolutely. He's one of my best friends, and that work is also key in the history of contemporary art. As you know, this work was created in 1973 during the dictatorship in Brazil. 
and uh, he would go to a bar, have a Coke, and uh, he would uh, finish drinking the bottle, and then he would just, in secret, invisible to most people, he would just glue this uh, little sign on top of the bottle. And because the typography was white, it was invisible. So at the time, the, the bottles were sent to the factory where they were washed and filled back with Coke and sent back to the bar. So when they came back filled in, you could read his messages on those bottles. And there were messages against the, the military coup, against the USA, etc., etc. He would say, Yankees go home, for example, and, and all those signs of that kind. So the title is brilliant, and that's what we do as artists. We insert ideas into ideological circuits. And so that work also, for me, has always been a model of what you can do as an artist. I wanted to look a bit more at photojournalism and your particular use of photojournalistic images in your work. And there's that particular body of work, one where you used Kevin Carter's image in Sound of Silence and another where you used Cohn Wessing's work in Shadows, taking these kind of extraordinary images from the world of photojournalism, but in in a way unpacking them, recontextualising them. Why did you want to do that? And tell me about your subjective response to the images as well as a response to the fact that they have this kind of extraordinary iconic presence in the history of that particular discipline. I have a a profound admiration for photojournalists, men and women that leave everything behind and they go to these places where nobody else would like to go. And they cover these tragedies and they tell us what's happening. And they send these images to photo agencies where they are waiting for photo editors to pick them up and to display them. And sometimes these images are shown, published, in not the most correct way. They are manipulated, etc., etc. So when I look at these images... When you go to these photo agencies, which I visited so many in my life, it's extraordinary. You discover the world. You discover humanity in all its facets. And there are so many images that have never been published. So when I discovered Kevin Carter's image, I thought it was the most powerful image I had ever seen created about hunger in the world. Would you describe it for us, Alfredo, before you go on? Yes. uh, It's an image of a child which is falling on the ground is obviously malnourished. And behind, there's a vulture waiting for the child to fall. It's a horrible image. It's absolutely extraordinary image. And um, it was published in the New York Times in March uh, 1993. And it created a huge controversy to the point that Kevin Carter committed suicide a year later. And so from one point of view, I thought, there's nothing I can add to this story. I mean, it's a very well-known image and so on. But... I had decided early on to create a trilogy of works about a single image. I wanted to to share with my audience my thinking about these images to to suggest, listen, images are not innocent. They're full of information. And sometimes we have to dig deep in order to understand them. So with The Sound of Silence, I tried to create what I call a theater of images, a theater for a single image. So it's a 228 cubic meters created for a single image and a film that lasted eight minutes where I tell the story and I share the story of that image and Kevin Carter's story. And I did the same with the extraordinary image of pain from uh, Kun Vessing about these two young women that had seen their father being killed by the Somoza regime. 
another extraordinary image. And I also wanted to try to share their pain with the audience. And that's what the objective of Shadows. Absolutely. And you also alluded to the whole process that goes into the making of that final now hugely well-known image as well. So you, you show the context that ultimately led to the creation of that particular photograph and how it became such a seminal image. Exactly. I think it's important to make all this mechanism visible. They add so much to the story and to the depth of how far we can go with a single image. That's why images are so important and, and they communicate so much to us. And uh, we are bombarded by millions of them. And so we tend to look at them in passing. And uh, we might do that, but at the same time, they are entering our brains and they are telling us things. And then they accumulate information in our brains and we act according to these images. So it's important to reveal what they're trying to say. What do you have pinned to the studio wall? Nothing, nothing. As an architect, I'm a maniac. I have a very organized studio. When people come in, they don't think it's an artist studio. They tell me it's a, it's an architecture studio, it's a philosopher's studio, it's a, it's a writer's studio. Because I, I have to focus on the project. So I do research in the studio, we produce things, but I prefer to have a clean environment. Right, and I know, though, you have folders full of your archive. So it seems to me that there's a curious thing there because, yes, you have nothing around you in terms of on the walls, but in those files is an abundance of imagery and almost sort of an excess of imagery. If you like. Absolutely. It's obscene. I just don't know what to do with it. Then. But once in a while, I go for it and then I, I dig in deep. And, and I'm so happy that I've saved all these things because they, they move me, they touch me and they trigger ideas and so on. Can some of them languish sort of unused, as it were, for many years before you return to them? Absolutely. Absolutely. They do that all the time. I have stuff from the 80s waiting for their use. And maybe I will never use them. And I don't know if we will ever make them public. A Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 170 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are Art Fields, the non-profit gallery and public art commissioner in Lake City, South Carolina, Camden Highline, a proposed project for a disused railway line in London, and George Eastman Museum, the world's oldest photography museum in Rochester, New York. On the app are numerous museums, galleries and organisations through which Alfredo Jar has shown his work, including the Whitechapel Gallery in London and the Public Art Fund. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll find that the Public Art Fund guide has audio and video features on its current exhibitions, including those by Ida Moulinet and Barty Kerr, information on their ongoing projects and highlights from the archive. The archive includes a section on messages to the public, the programme for which Alfredo made the work Logo for America. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions download the app today it's available from the app store and google play and you can keep up to date by following bloomberg connects on facebook twitter and instagram which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently because i travel so much approximately 250 days a year i do not have a favorite gallery so my favorite thing is to to find myself in a new place and discover discover places, discover galleries, discover museums, but also discover the place, discover the culture. There's nothing more extraordinary for me and more attractive to get lost in a place I don't know, in a place where I don't even speak the language. I like to get lost, and so I want to be surprised. I want to to trigger new ideas, new, new feelings, and you achieve that only when you're facing the unknown. 
So there isn't a place, I would say, where I go back often. I just, uh, I let myself go and uh, depending on, on the situation, on the time I have and so on, I, I improvise. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? There are so many. I can uh, mention maybe two. One political experience and one cultural experience. Uh, the political experience, of course, is uh, I was living in Chile in 1973, 50 years ago, when uh, there was a military coup led by General Pinochet. It's a coup that was financed by Kissinger and Nixon, who are in the exhibition here at Goodman. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I was 17 years old, and um, to be confronted by this reality, suddenly a democratically elected president is killed, and you start your life at that age in a dictatorship that lasted 17 years. So it was horrible. It was really horrible. I was able to leave uh, Chile in 1982, so I, I endured the nine first years of the coup, and the rest of the time I, I, I was in exile in New York. And so... You are surrounded by horror, by killings, by, by censorship. And that's when I started making art. And as an artist, of course, we were afraid to speak clearly against the military junta. So, but we still wanted to be present. We wanted to be visible. So we learned how to speak in between the lines, to say things that we hope that the military would not understand, but that the general audience would understand. So... I would say that, obviously, that political experience marked me deeply. Now, of course, studying architecture was a key factor in my life, and this is the methodology I use as an artist, the methodology of the architect. But I recall an experience in the mid-'80s. We went to see so much dance around in New York City because, as I said, my wife was a dancer. So we went to see Simone Forty at the performance in the kitchen. This is the mid-'80s. I didn't know anything about Simone. And we were young and uh, happy to be in New York at the time. We saw so much dance performance. And so at the kitchen, it was a huge loft, and we, we sat on the floor. We made a big circle, everyone on the floor, and uh, the center was empty, and we waited for the dancer to come. Just a loft. There was no stage, just a huge empty loft. Simone comes in, and she stands in the middle of the, of the crowd, and she doesn't move. She doesn't do anything, and she waits. She was like this for like maybe five, ten minutes. I don't know. My, my memory tells me that. I'm sure my wife will disagree, but, <laughs> but this is what, what I remember. And after ten minutes, she goes to the window of this loft and opens the window and goes back to the center. So suddenly there is noise coming from outside the street. And the kitchen was on, on Broom Street on, on the third floor, so we could hear the street noise. And then a truck drives by making some noise. And Simone starts moving according to the, the sound of the truck. And then a couple is discussing across the street, and she starts moving according to the, the voices of this couple. I mean, I was blown away. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was young. I had never seen anything like this, and there was no music. The sound was coming from the street, actual live sound, and she was starting to dance or making movements according to that sound. I will never forget that experience. And I've always uh, talked about that experience as a very important moment in my life. It's so interesting how that relates to 4 Minutes 33 in Cage. Again, you know, these, these wonderful through lines through what you're discussing. It's, it's absolutely about acknowledging a world of sound and acknowledging context. Absolutely. And that's what I'm interested in. You know, 
for me, the art world has always been fascinating, but it's still a world of fiction that ignores completely the, the world around it. It's, and that's not possible. That's not possible. I cannot conceive a work of art that is not responding to the reality around us. In fact, every single work that I've created responds to a specific moment in history or specific reality. I, I cannot conceive anything without thinking that way. I'd like to ask you a bit more about New York in the 1980s, because it seems to me to be an extraordinary moment in the sense that I, I know you've said that obviously you had deep respect for avant-garde circles in New York at that time, but you also said that it was sort of somehow divorced from reality in other parts of that art world and cultural scene, especially when you'd come from Santiago, as you say, you come from a place where making art was in fact a very dangerous act. So can you say more about that? To what extent did it liberate you or were there limitations within that scene? Well, what I discovered in New York really gave me the the formula of how to to be an artist in the world. Because when I arrived, I didn't know anything about the art world and I needed to understand the art world before acting. So the first few years I was working as an architect, but at night and on weekends, I was a kind of a cultural anthropologist. I wanted to see everything. I want to see every single exhibition, galleries, museum. I went to every lecture. I subscribed to every magazine. I read everything. I I was a sponge. I wanted to understand the art world. It was so mysterious for me, and I needed to understand before acting in it. And I discovered two things. First, it was definitely the most exciting thing I've ever seen. It was what, at the time, was thought of as the center of the art world. Of course, today is completely different. It's not, New York is not what it was at that time. Things have changed. Now there are many centers in the art world. There are no peripheries. But at the time, it was considered the center of the art world. The best exhibition, the best artists, the best publications, etc., etc. But I also discovered something else. I felt it was extremely provincial. Provincial in the sense that most artists were talking about themselves. They were looking at themselves. The work was self-referential. And if you had looked at the time, at the news, you would see that there were 37 conflicts around the world. Like now, like all the time. But you would never see that if you walk around galleries and museums. So there was a, a lack of interest about the world. Besides the fact that most artists exhibiting at the time were Americans or a few Germans. That was the international art world. Latin American artists, Asian artists, African artists, they were totally invisible. So that was my second conclusion. This uh, provincialism was totally unacceptable. That gave me a model and I thought, okay, I'm going to get out of here. And I'm going to bring the world to this city. It was a very ambitious project for a young artist like me, a young architect. But that's what I did. And I traveled to Brazil, to Serra Pelada, to a gold mine, which I had read about in a French magazine. And that's when I started my projects. Absolutely. And of course, as well as that project, there was the Logo for America project, which was 1987. So another way, and almost a manifesto or an emblem of everything that you've just said, there writ large on a digital billboard to say to people this is not america you know this is the us and and, and really hammer home the sort of provinciality that you're talking about absolutely and i don't know how did i dare doing that project i i was very young but i was full of rage in the face of that reality i had discovered that for the united citizens uh, america was the united states and by the wrong use of that language in their daily lives they were erasing the rest of the continent from the map and i thought i had to do something about it and it continues today of course there's an image in the goodman gallery show which is president trump standing before a 
child that's crossing from the Mexican border into the US and it says, welcome to America. And you have, in the same way that you did all those years ago, said, hang on a second. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's pointless. It's hopeless. I, I've tried so many times to change this, uh, this perception, but it's so embedded in the cultural language of the United States and the rest of the world. You Brits that are not European anymore, you talk about America all the time. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. It's not America. It's the United States. But uh, as I said, it's hopeless. I, I can't find a way to make you see that this is a continent and that we're all Americans. Somos todos americanos. But uh, it's, it's, it's impossible. But also, as you know, language is a reflection of, of, of a geopolitical reality. And perhaps when that geopolitical reality of domination of one country over the others changes... Perhaps then the language will change and people will say, oh, yes, this is the United States. This is not America. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to? Uh, I'm a great reader of poetry and I'm interested in, in haikus. So I have many favorite poets that I read all the time. I travel with them and so on in, in, in my bags. And I'm interested in poetry because I admire the, the capacity of poets to select just a few words in the case of haiku, and they, they manage to create an explosion of meaning out of nothing, practically, so very few words. And I'm interested in the haiku because of the economy of means, and for me the haiku has become a model, in a sense, to how to make art. So when I make a piece, I'm, I'm trying to think like a haiku poet. I'm trying to edit Edit, edit, clean, clean, clean. I believe in the power of a single idea, and that's what I try to do, and I follow the haiku model for that. And of course you made that film, your first film in 2005, Mushime, which is directly referencing cantos and the haiku format that you just talked about. Absolutely. I've learned so much from poets. Poets are the solitary thinkers of, of the art world, of the, of the cultural world. They are very lonely. There they are looking for words and playing with them. It, it moves me. What they do moves me. And, uh, and as I said, uh, the haiku model is uh, the one I follow in my work. You used a Ben Okri poem as part of a very important piece that you did for the 2002 documentary, Okri and Wezo's documentary, a piece called Lament of the Images, which had many manifestations and is in the Tate collection and so on. Can you say something about why Okri's poem was so important to that and how you used it? Yeah, I think that poem is magnificent. Actually, we were here in London and we went to see Ben Okri with Okri, with Okri and Weza. We went to see him in a recital and we went to meet him. And uh, I was always fascinated by that poem. That poem is, is so powerful, so powerful. And, and I dared to use that title for the title of my work in, uh, in Document uh, 2001 for Okri. Ben Okri is, is one of the greatest writers of our time. I'm a big admirer of him. And from Nigeria, also, I'm interested very much in, in others, particularly Chinua Achebe, who I also met, uh, another great writer. Nigeria has produced an enormous amount of extraordinary writers. Mm. And from Chinua, uh, I like very much uh, what he said about art. He wrote that uh, art is our attempt to change the order of reality that was given to us. And I've always used that definition. It's, it's the most crazy utopian definition you can find, but it's also probably the most beautiful and poetic one. How do we change that order of reality that was given to us? I have no idea. And that's why I'm an artist. 
We can't talk about writing, of course, without talking about Gramsci and a whole body of work within your body of work about Gramsci and about his influence. You've always linked him with Pasolini, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. I, I discovered Gramsci in Chile. He was a very important figure for the resistance uh, to Pinochet. And then I discovered, when I started film, I discovered the, the connection between Pasolini and Gramsci, which I, I didn't know at the time. So then they became very important figures. And I've always said that I work in the shadow of Gramsci and, and Pasolini. And particularly you talked about Pasolini's quote about culture being a prison and using that quote as a metaphor, apart from anything else in lots of work, but also as a kind of, almost it seems to me like an instruction to yourself to free yourself at every given opportunity. Absolutely. Pasolini respected culture. He was a a huge cultural producer, but he also was very critical in the insularity of the cultural world. And he asked us to get out, to get out, to see the world, to respond to the world. So that's why I've used that metaphor. What music or other audio do you listen to while working? Uh, Nothing. Music is too important to be listening to it while you're working. (laughs) You know, Nietzsche said that uh, without music, life would be a mistake. And I really believe that. So no, I can't be listening to music at the same time I'm working. My brain is, is working on something, on a project, and I cannot be doing something as important as that, which is listening to music. So I, I never listen to anything when I'm working. What music is most important to you? I know, for instance, you very powerfully used Angolan folk songs in Muchima, which I just mentioned. Was that a passion that emerged from being in Angola or did you know that music before you began the piece? Yes, exactly that way. It's in reverse. I, uh, I've collected uh, contemporary African music for many, many years. And the focus of my collection is uh, contemporary African music with Portuguese influence, the music of Angola, Mozambique, Cabo Verde, and so on. That music uh, transmits what is called saudade, which is a sentiment that has no translation in English. Uh, Fernando Pessoa wrote that you cannot understand saudade if you're not Portuguese or if you don't speak Portuguese. Uh, saudade means so many things. People have translated as melancholy, uh, nostalgia, longing, and so on. But the best definition I've read about saudade is that you discover saudade, you understand saudade when you realize that everything in life is ephemeral. Suddenly you realize, oh, this is ephemeral. This is going to go away in the next second. At that moment, you feel saudade. So anyway, I have an obscene amount of this type of music, which when you listen to it, and I can mention uh, Cesaria Evora, who is probably the best known singer from that uh, category, or Bonga and so on, which are also a hero of mine. It's a very joyful music and very sad music at the same time. And this is what attracts me. It's beautiful, it makes you cry, but it also fills you with joy. And this is what... The definition of life, the definition of the contradiction of life. I mean, we are very privileged to be alive. We have a roof under our heads. We have a heated room. We can have a tea right now. This is an extraordinary privilege, but this is like 10% of the world. The rest of the world is, is in very different conditions. So this knowledge of this contradiction of our lives, that we have to be always aware of that. And, and that music tells me about that. Oh, that's so nice. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? 
Yes, and that has not changed for, for a long time. It's my media reading at the start of the day. Earlier on, I was reading papers, but now, of course, it's the internet. I subscribe to an obscene amount of magazines and newspapers, and I, and I read them. And it's a necessity. I cannot get out of my home, or in this case, my hotel, without knowing what's happening around the world. And I accumulate uh, information in my brain and also in, in archives and, and files that I save, depending on the subjects and so on. This is coming from my father. My father could not leave home without reading his papers. And uh, he would uh, comment the news with us at home, at lunch, at dinner. And he would ask us questions. He would challenge us. Uh, he made us see uh, the world thanks to his thinking uh, and, and looking at the media. And uh, we learned how to read the papers thanks to him. And I think I've continued doing that all my life. Do you deliberately, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that you disagree with 99% of what The Economist writes and so on. Do you deliberately leave the silos that we can sort of naturally fall into in the sense, do you read newspapers that you know fundamentally their editorial position is opposed to many of your views? Absolutely. I read everything. I'm very curious and I follow certain events and I enjoy seeing how different media cover the same event and the differences between the coverage and uh, the omissions, the lies, the manipulation. I'm fascinated by that. And I don't get tired of this. And every morning I do the same thing. Is there any part of you that's working in that process? Or do you reserve the working for later, if you know what I mean? The point I'm making is, is there a point where you actively think that image or that story is something I'm going to park for the moment and come back to and make a work from? Or does that seem too systematic? No, I just accumulate information. I save a lot of stuff, but no, I'm not working in that sense. Uh, because I've realized that when you have an idea, you have to let it rest. And most ideas will not resist two weeks. You look back two weeks later at an idea that you have spontaneously in the face of a certain thing certain reality and you'll find that idea very stupid and you dismiss it so you have to let things rest and you have to go back to them later so what I do I accumulate information a lot of information and then I go back to it later and then maybe sometimes out of this mass of information mass of critical information some idea will emerge if you could live with just one work of art what would it be it would be Piero Manzoni's uh, The Socle du Monde it's a work that I discovered very early on, and I think it's a brilliant piece of art. It's such a simple work where, as you know, it's a, it's a simple uh, brass um, rectangle, like, like a cubic uh, rectangle sitting on the grass. And uh, you approach it not knowing exactly what this is about, and then suddenly you see the title, Socle du Monde, but it's written upside down. And so suddenly you realize that uh, if you turn it around... And you realize that this little cube is supporting the entire world. And it's like a pedestal for the world. And that conceptual gesture is absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And that takes us to Duchamp and so on. But this idea that this little cube is supporting the entire world is just blows me away. And I've always adored this piece. And when I'm in Scandinavia, I always fly to that little town and to, to pay my homage to that work. It's called Homage to Galilei also. It's a subtitle of the work. It's Socle du Monde. It's from Manzoni. That's right. And it's in Herning in Denmark, which is, as you say, it's not an art world centre, but it has this hugely important work. Yes, absolutely. And finally, what's art for? Well, for me, it's a way to understand the world. 
everything I know, everything I understand of the world, I've learned as an artist. And uh, it helps me to make sense of the world. And hopefully what I try to do in my work as an artist, I'm trying to make sense of the world for the audience. I'm trying to take them to places they have never been, metaphorically, and perhaps to reveal certain ideas that are invisible around us. But mostly I try to make sense of the world, which is so complex, so difficult to understand. And, and for me, it has become more difficult than ever. It doesn't become easier as I grow old. It's become more difficult. And I have no answer. But I think art is a possible place to help us understand the world. Alfredo, thank you so much. Thank you. Happy to talk to you. Alfredo Jar, if it concerns us, it concerns you, is at Goodman Gallery in London from the 18th of April to the 24th of May. Alfredo Jar, 50 years later, is at Cecilia Brunson Projects in London from the 19th of April until the 19th of May. One Million German Passports is at the Pinacotec del Moderna in Munich until the 27th of August. Alfredo's exhibition for the 11th Hiroshima Art Prize at the Hiroshima City Museum of Contemporary Art in Japan runs from the 22nd of July until the 15th of October and an exhibition at the Museo Nacional de Bellas Artes in Santiago, Chile opens on the 14th of September. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Town Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Danielle Hathaway and a big thank you to Alfredo Jar. That's the end of this series. We'll see you at the end of May, but bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.